Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Amen. Well, good morning. We're in Ephesians 1 last time. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing up our series on the letter to the Ephesians, and I've titled this sermon, Storytelling Ephesians. We'll get to that sort of at the very end. Uh, and of course, we've been working our way through Ephesians slowly, uh, taking the time to look at this book with a fresh perspective. So now, how are we feeling now that we're at the end? Are some of us like, yes, we're finally done with Ephesians. I'm tired of being in this letter. Or some of us like sad, like, oh no, we're leaving Ephesians. We're never coming back ever again. Uh, I have sort of mixed emotions on, on one level. Uh, I think we've spent a good amount of time here, and I think we've learned a lot. Um, I think it's time to start focusing on other things, but... Um, but there, there is some sad elements moving on, too. Before we look at our question for this morning, uh, I want to bring back the four themes we've been working through. Uh, this is our last time to take a look at them. Um, the first one, we've been seeing that Ephesians was written to a people group halfway around the world 2,000 years ago. Um, halfway around the world and a different mindset. Uh, we, we live in a modern, western, very individualistic society. Uh, they did not live in a modern Western individualistic society. They lived in an ancient Eastern communalistic society. <laughs> and so we have to read Ephesians, and I would say really the rest of the Bible, with a lens that fits that, that fits the idea that it's not a modern Western individualistic book. So we've been reading every you as y'all. Uh, we also notice the we versus you le- uh, stuff in the beginning of the letter uh, most specifically. Uh, the second thing we've been looking at is new creation and new order of things in Jesus. Uh, this idea of an apocalypse where we encounter Jesus like Paul, uh, the apostle, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He went to Damascus with the purpose of persecuting Christians, and on his way, he met Jesus. And it changed his whole life. Now, it took him time to process those things. You know, He went to the wilderness for like three years, uh, but, you know, Eventually, he comes out of this whole process an apostle, not just a disciple, but an apostle of Christ. Uh, so that, that kind of a wild encounter with Christ changed his whole perspective on the Bible, what he would have called uh, the Bible, which was what we call the Old Testament. And so once he saw the truth clearly, once it transformed his life, uh, he was able to reframe his whole existence in light of Christ. And we do the same thing today. Um, and that's one way of looking at what the kingdom of God uh, means. Uh, we know that the kingdom is a future thing, that Christ will come and establish uh, his kingdom on earth in the future. But uh, part of that is living that out today. What does that look like today? And it looks like lives transformed by Christ. Then the third and the fourth thing we've been looking at is unity in Christ. Uh, in, the, in the letter to the Ephesians, that's mostly manifested as Jew and Gentile, these people groups uh, that uh, disagreed with one another. Uh, over the years and had a lot of conflicts over the years, the people of God being the Jews and the people outside the people of God uh, being the non-Jews. And what we find out in the letter to the Ephesians is that now there are non-Jews that can come in and, and be part of the story of God. And that God's plan is to bring unity in everything through Christ. That's the uh, wonderful mystery that Paul is unveiling to them in this letter of the Ephesians, that that God's plan is to unite everything in heaven on, and on earth to himself through Christ. And uh, we see that manifested in different ways today. Uh, the division that we see is different than Jew and Gentile. And then fourth, when we do see division, 
when we do see uh, conflict, when we see war, when we see uh, these forces of evil, uh, we know that we're dealing with the, what we've been calling the powers. Uh, and the powers, again, it's a big, a big topic. We've talked about it a couple different times. We'll, we'll reflect on it a little bit today. But uh, when we see uh, racism, when we see sexism, when we see um, conflict, when we see all these things, we know that the powers are at work in some form or fashion. So really my question for today is, uh, which we'll get to at the very end, like I said, is what story is Ephesians telling? Uh, what story is Ephesians telling and what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for our lives? So we're going to begin by reading and discussing the last uh, handful of verses and then we'll, we'll end with a little bit of storytelling time. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, at the very end, we'll read verses uh, 18 through 24. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that y'all also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell y'all everything. I have sent him to y'all for this very purpose, that y'all may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Uh, this morning we heard from God several times about how important it was for us to stand in this dark world. And we've been reflecting on uh, what our brother Dan shared with us last week about being strong enough to stand. We face opposition in this life. Uh, Paul outlines what's behind that opposition uh, in the section we talked about last week. And so the point coming out of last week and into this week is that we have the ability that we need in Christ uh, to stand individually and then to stand together as a community. And part of the way that we accomplish this is through prayer. We stand together through prayer. In verse 18, Paul encouraged the Ephesians to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so he uses the word pray in the noun form. He uses it in the verb form. And then he also uses some other prayer words with it. So I think he's trying to make a point here. He, wants, he thinks we should be a praying people. And the way I think about this is that uh, Paul has just described uh, a soldier outfitted for battle, ready to wage war. And so when we engage, we can think of it as uh, people use the term spiritual warfare. Uh, other people call it an uh, athletic competition. People use different terminology. But here, primarily, the focus is on the warrior. It's on uh, warfare here, spiritual warfare. And when we engage in that warfare, when we fight uh, back against the powers of this evil world, uh, one of the ways that we fight back is through prayer. And specifically here, what we see about that prayer is that the prayers are done with an alert mind. We're to be watchful, awake, alert, uh, with perseverance. We're to continue doing this, not just do it once and be done, but to continue fighting. Uh, the battle's not won the first time. It can be won over a period of time. And then here he encourages prayer for the saints which here in the original context of the letter would have been for all the other Christians in this Ephesian community. And then, of course, we can apply it to our lives and our communities today. One thing that, thing that I thought was interesting uh, that Tim Mackey said, we've been, we've been pulling from the Bible Project class on Ephesians quite a bit 
uh, throughout this uh, series. And one of the things that was interesting as they were reflecting on this uh, closing passage is um, the fact that prayer and, and uh, interceding and, and performing supplications and thing lo- things like this, uh, there, was, there was a group of people uh, in what we would call the Old Testament time frame that used to do this for the children of Israel. And those were the priests. The priests were the ones who would go into uh, the tabernacle or the temple. They would perform certain sacrifices so they could approach God. And then once they were clear to approach God, they prayed for the people. They interceded for the people. And so we've been sort of watching this temple language. There's another theme that we didn't pull out necessarily, uh, but we've been pointing it out as we've been seeing it. I'm just pointing out again that this is temple language here at the end of Ephesians. It's sort of been threaded throughout this idea that we are priests and that we minister to others. And one of the ways that we minister uh, to others and for others is by praying for people. So when we pray for others, we are acting like priests. And we are called to battle with them and for them in this way. Uh, Again, remaining alert and with perseverance. What's interesting is in verse 19, Paul asked the Ephesians specifically to pray for him. He opened up his heart and his life and he shared some things that I guess in some sense would have made him vulnerable. And what we would say in our modern culture is him being vulnerable with them. And he wanted their help with his engaging in warfare with the powers that he was specifically dealing with, uh, the battle that he was specifically fighting. And what he wanted to be able to do is to say the right words when he had a chance to defend himself. Uh, Paul is in prison. He's in prison uh, dealing with these Roman authorities, and he knew he might only get one chance to do two things, to convince the people that were holding him that he didn't need to be held, he didn't need to be a prisoner anymore. He wanted to get out and preach the gospel in public again. But second, and probably more important for Paul, is if the door was opened, he wanted to be able to preach the gospel to his captors, to the people who were keeping him in prison. But as we've been discussing, uh, the gospel message is, it's, it's wild, it's powerful, it's transformative. And while it was certainly attractive, Paul knew to the lower classes in Roman society, we've been walking through that in our section on submission, Uh, There are reasons why it would not be attractive to the Roman elites, Uh, and that's pretty clear. But Lynn Kohit goes a little bit further. We're going to quote her again today in the New International Commentary on the New Testament. This is what she had to say about this verse. She said, Boldness is necessary due to the astounding content of the message, the mystery of the gospel that challenges the Roman status quo. We rightly think of the gospel as good news, and it is. For those who know they are broken people living in a sinful age. I'm going to pause there for a second. How many of you think that like the Roman uh, governors and and prefects and people watching over Paul thought that they were broken sinners living in a broken sinful age? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't think anybody thought that, right? Okay, let's continue here. However, this picture of the times would sound blasphemous to imperial Roman ears that hear only the claim peace and security through their savior, the emperor. Additionally, the gospel amounted to blasphemy against the gods and one's family, which is why Paul's message received so much negative attention. Then she cites Acts 16, which Dan cited last week and 17. Paul encouraged Gentiles to embrace Christ, the Messiah of the Jews, and forsake their pagan gods and their ancestral and hearth gods. Undaunted by imperial power, Paul proclaims the gospel message throughout the empire to all Gentiles, this mystery, 
And then she quotes Colossians, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. So, you know, Paul, Paul's asking for boldness because he knows that his message that he has for them is going to be weird to them. That it's not going to be the most immediately attractive thing for them to hear. And uh, so that's why he wants boldness. He knows, as he says in 1 Corinthians, he knows that it is, um, that it is a strange word for them to hear. <laughs> that it's going to be foolishness to them. And so he wants the opportunity to share it in a way that's compelling and convicting. And he believes that prayers will help him accomplish that. And of course, that God would be involved in that process. In verse 20, Paul reminded them of his chains. And in the same uh, term, he uses the word ambassador to describe himself. And I know we've, again, we've become familiar with these words and we don't often think about these things. But I just wanted to spend a second talking about how weird that is. That you talk about being an ambassador in chains, an ambassador in bonds. Um, an ambassador is someone of high status who goes to a foreign country, and when they go to that foreign country, they have what's called diplomatic immunity, which means even if a, an ambassador were to be proven to, let's say, commit a murder, for example, they could not be brought up on charges of committing a murder. The worst that could happen is they get deported back to their home country. That's what happens with diplomatic immunity. But here, Paul is a prisoner which in that culture was a person of incredibly low status and who obviously was already serving time, ironically for a crime that he didn't even commit, really. And so Paul is using this language very interestingly. He's painting a picture for us uh, that's sort of upside down, this idea of an ambassador in chains, an ambassador in bonds. Paul held on to his status as an ambassador even when he was in prison. Now, in verse 21 and through the rest of the chapter, Paul shifts to a more pastoral tone. Uh, he cared deeply about these people in, in the Ephesian church and the churches surrounding Ephesus. Um, so his solution was to send them this man, Tychicus. And I wanted to share a little bit about Tychicus. The first mention of Tychicus is in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And he's listed as being from Asia, okay? And he's listed along another man whose name is Trophimus. I don't know if you remember this. We talked about Trophimus all the way back at the beginning of our series on Ephesians. And Trophimus was the person specifically that Paul was accused of bringing into the temple in Acts 21. So the reason that Paul's in prison is because they thought he brought Trophimus into the temple past the, you know, the level the Gentiles were allowed to go into. Um, Trophimus, as we found out in Acts 21, isn't just from Asia. He's from Ephesus. And so it's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that Tychicus himself was also uh, from Ephesus specifically, even though we know he was generally from the area around Ephesus. Now, Tychicus is also mentioned in Colossians 4.7. He's called a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. Uh, here, he's just called a beloved brother and faithful minister, just a beloved <laughs> brother and faithful minister. Uh, he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy and Titus as someone that Paul could trust by sending other various places. So Paul sent him here to Ephesus uh, to read this letter and to take questions uh, and to engage with the people and help them understand what Paul's heart was for them. Uh, he's clearly someone that Paul trusted deeply. Uh, and so as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking, how cool would it be if Tychicus could be with us today and tell us more about the letter to the Ephesians? Uh, I would have liked to have had him throughout this whole series. It would have been cool to have Tychicus here with us. In verses 23 and 24, 
uh, Paul closes with a benediction. And so we are, we close this letter being encouraged that Christ has given us peace with God and with each other, that we can trust in God and that we have received God's grace. And then he closes with this phrase, uh, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Uh, We can gather from that that we are to love Christ with an undying love. That's what that word incorruptible means, undying, eternal love. And so that's it. That's the letter to the Ephesians. Amen. (laughs) Close the book, right? Um, So it's been fun to go through the letter to the Ephesians with you. Uh, Before I get to some takeaway points and we talk about storytelling a little bit, I wanted to thank some people. Um, I wanted to thank uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, uh, Lynn Kohick and her New International Commentary on the New Testament, uh, Clint Arnold and his Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary, uh, then three others that I used some too were Max Turner, Arthur Patzia, and Andrew Lincoln. Um, it's just amazing to be in the modern world and to have these kind of resources available very readily. Um, and I think you know, using resources like this in my mind is an example of what we saw in Ephesians chapter 5 of submitting one to another. Uh, there are people in our culture, there are people in our world today who spend their whole lives studying uh, the history of the first century, uh, studying Greek and Hebrew, uh, studying the way that ancient people lived their lives. And then they'd use that knowledge not for like whatever gain, you know, academic gain or whatever they could do. They use it to understand the Bible of all things. Um, and so I just am humbled uh, to have the opportunity uh, to be able to cite them and to learn from them. I also wanted to thank the people who taught uh, in the series with me. Um, And this is just an order of people as they went. Uh, John Ely, Jason Carter, Megan Werwell, Jerry Weller, and Dan Kerr. Let's give them all a hand here. Uh, I know I was thankful to not have to listen to myself 22 weeks in a row, so I'm sure y'all were even more thankful than I was for that. so I want to start uh, the close, to close here with some takeaway points, and I'm going to put up a slide that we've been seeing a lot, uh, our friendly four layers of interpretation slide. And uh, we've been, again, realizing that Ephesians is uh, this letter that was written to a people group a long time ago, uh, not quite in a galaxy far, far away, but you get the point, uh, that very different culture, very different world from us. And to help us uh, sort of break the habit of just reading the Bible and immediately thinking about how it applies to us, we've been meditating on these four layers of interpretation basically every week. And I guess the point I want to make here at the end of the series is this isn't just like a letter to the Ephesians kind of a thing. This is a whole Bible kind of a thing. This is something that we should be taking into our uh, daily Bible reading, our daily meditation on the scriptures. Um, there's, there's no book of the Bible that was specifically written to Will Barlow or to Will Barlow's culture and Will Barlow's time. Um, it was written to the people of God throughout various times and various ages where they were dealing with uh, all sorts of different issues. Uh, whether it was the original generation that left uh, Egypt and the Exodus, those are the people that received the first five books of the Bible that we call the law or the Torah. Uh, or whether you think about the, um, the letter that Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets later wrote, when people are dealing with evil kings and the threat of exile and all these other things going on in their lives, or the Gospels that were written for groups of specific people 
uh, in the first century so that they would understand and want to follow Jesus. That's why the Gospels were written. It's for people in the first century. Some of them were written for Jews, some of them were written for Gentiles. But they were written for people in the first century so that they would understand who Jesus was and would decide to, to follow after him and have an apocalypse and have their lives transformed by Christ. Now, can we learn from all of these things? Absolutely we can. Can we apply so much of the wisdom contained in the Bible? Absolutely we can. But the only point that I'm trying to make is, is that that takes a little bit more effort than just picking it up and, and just glancing at it and thinking, oh, I can just immediately apply this. I need, we need to think more about who they were, what, how they would have understood it, and then I think the application piece comes right in after that. So I hope, I hope that you think about these four layers of interpretation even when we move beyond the Ephesians series. Keep it up. Keep it going. Now, from a doctrinal perspective, I, I had a couple takeaway points beyond the four themes that we looked at. Actually, one of them is one of our four themes. I'm sort of cheating here. But, um, but one of them is uh, the powers. The first one is sort of the powers. Um, seeing, uh, I know I've expanded my view on this considerably through the course of this series, um, seeing that it's not just the devil. I mean, the devil is part of it. Uh, he's the leader of, in some sense, the powers, uh, and that his angels are part of the story too, but that it's so much more than that. It's, it's political structures, it's economic structures, it's cultural conventions. I mean, think about, think about how in our modern society how difficult it is to have the boldness to speak the gospel to someone. That's a cultural convention that's brought about by these powers. It's slavery brought about by these powers. Okay, so we deal with these things every day, and some of them uh, are literal agents. We could say that they have a consciousness, right? The, you know, the devil and the demons, they do have a consciousness. But so many of these things are just in, in place, and they operate on their own. They sort of have a life of their own, even though they're not living. And um, it was really interesting. Uh, Tim Mackey, in this last section, he references a book called The Death of Satan that was written by a man named Andrew Del Blanco. Uh, Del Blanco is actually a non-Christian, and what the point of the book, The Death of Satan, um, is trying to get at is he's, he's analyzing why we live in a time today where when you and I disagree on politics, or you and I disagree on faith, or you and I disagree on whatever, that immediately the anger level goes all the way up to, right? Like, why does it get so, why do I call names and point fingers so quickly? Why does that happen? And this guy is a non-Christian. He's, I think, either an atheist or agnostic. Um, and he says that the reason why people do that is because we've lost the Christian, biblical, Judeo-Christian worldview that it's not the people that are the problem. It's the powers behind them that are the problem. Because if I engage with someone and I have a Christian or a biblical worldview on this, then I understand, you know, we disagree, but maybe it's because the powers are working in their lives, or maybe it's because the powers, I have to be humble enough to say, well, maybe the power is working in me. Maybe the evil powers are working in me and that I don't have a clear understanding of this. But if I do that, if I have a biblical worldview, then I give myself more grace, I give them more grace. It never ends up where I demonize them. But if you take the devil out of the equation... Now, what do you have to do? You have to create, in some sense, a devil. And so the other person becomes the devil. And so that's where we, lead, we get to dehumanization of people and, and demonizing them. And so it's really interesting. And this book, again, was written by an, a non-believer. <laughs> so there you go. So I think our understanding of the powers, uh, seeing what Dan shared so clearly last week, that our fight is not with flesh and blood, but it is with the powers of this world. Understanding that, 
allows us to engage with people in this world with grace, with humility, with peace, and can minister to them. So it's a powerful thing to have that understanding of the world. Another key concept that came up multiple times I thought uh, was a good takeaway point uh, is the idea of grace and gifting and the social historical norms related to honor-shame societies. Um, we, t- we talked about um, uh, the Barclay's book on the gift and grace and about the six different characteristics of, of grace and gifting, five of which he found in ancient cultures, and the one that we think is the most important was not found in ancient cultures. Um, and so the idea that uh, grace is unconditioned, not unconditional, which means we receive it, not because we deserve it, but that there also is something that we're supposed to do about it. And that's really what Paul unpacks for us in chapters four through six is this is what we're supposed to do. Once you've received an apocalypse, your life should, sh- should change. Your life should look different. And he outlines that in Ephesians four through six, largely. Another key concept we've been looking at is the kingdom of God. And again, we went through this uh, in a series uh, not too long ago. Um, but you know, understanding the kingdom of God is this coming time of restoration of all things, restoration of the earth, uh, this eternal state uh, where God will dwell with his people again. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. And so, um, but the word kingdom doesn't appear in, in the letter to the Ephesians. But I would submit to you that the idea of the kingdom of God is all over the place in Paul's epistles, and especially even here in Ephesians. And so the way that we see that is not through looking for the word kingdom, because you're not going to find it in a lot of places. Uh, but we did see in chapter one of the book of Ephesians that Christ is the king over all the powers. He's been elevated above all the powers. He's shown as a king. That's kingdom language, right? If he's Lord over all the powers, then he's a king. Uh, God's plan for unity. When is God's plan for unity to come in, is going to come into full effect? When is this inheritance that we're going to receive? Again, chapter one of Ephesians. When is that going to come? It's going to come in the kingdom, right? The fullness of time that it talks about there. That's the kingdom. Uh, this prayer for an apocalypse, the idea that meeting Jesus changes our lives. Well, that's kingdom living. We've been calling that kingdom living, right? Uh, Jerry even unpacked that for us in the middle of chapter four as well, seeing that kingdom living in, in the middle of chapter four. What about uh, the section we just got out of in chapter, the end of chapter five and into ch- uh, the beginning of chapter six, where we have servant leadership uh, transforming the way that we view our families and how our families interact with the culture around us. Isn't that understanding upside down leadership, upside down kingdom, and then applying it to the family? I think it is. I think all these things we can tie into the kingdom of God and understanding God's plan for the future and how we're to live out, live like that today. And then the last thing I want to just point out is I hope that generally speaking, I know I've, I, I generally come to the Bible thinking there's more to learn, there's more to understand, there's more to apply. Uh, but I think even in Ephesians, I was surprised with how much I learned um, from just my study. I learned from the other people who taught. Um, it was a really powerful time for me. Uh, the last 22 weeks we've spent here. And uh, I hope that um, you all are also reinvigorated and feel that way, that we can see uh, the Bible differently, that we can see more layers of it, um, and that there's always more to learn, more to see, more to apply. So uh, with those in mind, I want to close by talking a little bit about storytelling and think about what storytelling Ephesians would look like Um, When we think about stories, um, stories are really, really powerful things. Um, And I was thinking about our lives, and most of us, um, 
We tell stories about ourselves, about our families all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, stories are just sort of uh, part of the water that we swim in. Um, think about a lot of the big events that happen in your life. Um, many of you, for example, know my story. People ask me, well, you know, why did, when did you become a pastor or why did you become a pastor? Well, I immediately have a story to tell. I have a story to tell about when God first, I feel like, called me to ministry, uh, the first attempts I made at ministry, how that crashed and burned, right? Uh, and then the time of waiting, and then now what's been made available to me. Uh, so I have a specific story about that. I have a story to answer that question. Uh, when we make a mistake, uh, when, we, when we wrong someone, uh, one of the first things that we do is we construct a story that makes it not our fault anymore. Oh, well, they didn't know that I, has, I had this problem, or I was dealing with this, or uh, this was going on in my life. Um, I'm not really the bad guy here. I'm just misunderstood, right? We construct stories all the time. Um, and so uh, we all have important stories about our life, about who we are and why we are the way we are, about how we fit into our families, how we fit into our church community, all those things. We have, we, we have these stories about our lives. And what I want to point out is, and I don't use the word story to mean like make-believe or anything like that. I'm, I'm talking about narratives. I'm talking about uh, facts that are arranged in a way that uh, describe details about things. Uh, the Bible is full of stories. I believe that they're true. I believe they're historical, but they're full, it's full of stories. But I also believe that the Bible tells a unified story, singular, of redemption. Um, thinking about the Bible Project, their mission is, I'm going to quote it here, to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus, end quote. So I agree with the Bible Project. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so throughout the letter to the Ephesians, we see that Paul had a specific stories, plural, in mind and a specific story, singular, in mind as he was writing this letter. He had specific moments in the history of the people of God that he drew from through the Spirit to describe the story, the gospel message. And so I just want to reflect on that a little bit here to close us out of the series. The letter to the Ephesians begins by talking about us being chosen in Christ. And when we talked about that, we talked about how that language of chosen, it goes all the way back to Adam. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was chosen to be the father of many nations. Later, David was chosen to be God's king. And what we see throughout the Old Testament, those stories of the Old Testament, God continues blessing his enemies. He, he chooses someone, but they don't do what God wants them to do, ultimately. He chooses David. David doesn't do all the things that God wants him to do. Uh, and repeatedly, God continues working with his enemies. He continues loving his enemies. He continues offering grace and mercy to humanity who've made themselves God's enemies. And so finally, God sends Jesus, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. So what does that king do? Well, that king lives a life free from sin. Uh, he does things like he hugs lepers, which is incredibly surprising for a rabbi in that time to do. Uh, he heals the sick. He casts out demons. He defeats the devil's temptation not through physical violence. He doesn't like pick up the sword and try to like slash the devil up, but by quoting scripture and on, relying on his father and God. Through his love, this king restores people into relationship with his father. Through his words, he divides the pure-hearted from those who have wrong motives. The king shows us what the world will look like when everything is restored. 
And then the king dies. That's the end of the story, right? The king dies. That's what defeat looks like, right? No. The king gets up. He's awakened by his father. He's given a new body. He's given life eternal. And he's elevated above all the powers. He's only subject to his father now. So the question that Paul's trying to answer in the letter to the Ephesians is, did the king do this for the people of God, the Jews only? And the answer that he gives in the letter to the Ephesians is no. He didn't do it for the Jews only. And that's the good news of Ephesians. The Gentiles formerly, as it says in chapter 2, formerly walked in darkness, living according to the ways that the powers wanted us to live. The Gentiles were formerly separated from God, having no hope. And that's where we begin in our story, following along with the Gentiles that heard this message 2,000 years ago. The turning of the story happens with God, God's decision. But God, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, God made a way for us to have access to him through Jesus our Lord. Now the Gentiles are connected to the promises of God. They're part of the family. They're part of the temple being built. They're part of the story of the people of God now. So when we think about us today, Gentiles living 2,000 years after these initial Gentile, mostly Gentile church received this, what is our place in the story? What is our place in the story? Our place in the story is to realize the same thing, that we were born uh, dead in trespasses and sins, that God made a way for us when we didn't deserve anything, that he extended his grace and his love and his mercy to us when we least deserved it. And now we are part of the people of God. Now we're being built into this temple. Now we are part of the story. We can, we can stand for God now. We are put, to put on the new humanity, the new way of living. We are to walk in the light. We're to do this in our families. We're to do this in our church. We're to do this when no one is watching us except for God. There are parts of our lives that only God has access to. And we're to live this way even when that's true, that no one else is around us. That's our place in the story. And finally, our place in the story, as Dan shared last week, is to fight and to stand against the powers. Paul had the people of Ephesians picture a strong soldier ready to stand against the enemy. And he encouraged them to stand strong because of what has been given to them, all the things that have been given to them. And we similarly are to stand strong in our lives. We fight battles that we individually face, and then we can collectively unite to fight the powers in a larger sense. I think about that. We, we've been reflecting on that a little bit throughout the series. And I sort of want to close with that thought that there are things that we individually fight. There are sins and, and things and struggles that we have individually that, yes, we should loop someone or two people else in to keep us accountable and to shine the light on the situation and to help us develop and those types of things. But the rest of the church community will never know those things. They'll never help you with those things. It might just be a handful of people that help you in those situations. And we should seek out that help so that we can fight uh, for and with one another against the powers. But I also think it's important as a church community, large scale, to recognize that that's not the end of the story for Christianity. The end of the story is not that I become morally perfect and Paula becomes morally perfect and Dave becomes morally perfect. We all live these morally perfect lives in our own little bubbles, in our own little families, doing our own little things. We come together on Sunday, we praise the Lord together, and then we go back home to our perfect little lives. That's not Christianity. That's not what Paul's describing in this letter to the Ephesians. If that's where we end up as a church, then we will have, we will have missed the boat. We will have missed what God wants for us. Because the point of standing against the powers, especially 
in a collective sense, and again, this whole book is a collective book. This whole letter is a collective letter. The whole point is, yes, we should be morally pure. We should be driving ourselves to walk in the light. We should be submitting to one another. We should be doing the things that Paul encouraged us to do individually. For us to do it collectively, we have to be doing it individually. But the higher calling of this letter to the Ephesians is not in me becoming morally pure. The higher calling is that together we can be a force for good in the city of Louisville. And because of that example, we can bring more people to Christ and help them understand what love looks like. Help them understand what our Father's heart for them is. That's what Ephesians is about. That's what standing strong is about. It's about fighting the powers in a larger sense. And I'm not interested in doing this politically. I'm not interested in fighting racism by passing new laws or fighting sexism by passing new laws. I'm interested in fighting these things as a community of faith dedicated to reaching out to people who've been abused by the powers and used by the powers and showing them that there's another way in Christ. That's what the letter of Ephesians is about. That's what we've been called to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great story. This great story that leads to your son, Jesus. We're thankful for how you provided for us every step of the way. You gave us grace and mercy when we didn't deserve it. You gave us your son. And now, Father, you've given us the scripture that we can meditate on, that we can put on in our hearts, we can learn from. And Father, you've given us this community that we can stand with and encourage and comfort. And Father, we do, we do want to be pure. We do want to live sanctified lives. We do want to individually reflect your goodness and grace. But Father, we don't want to stop there. It's not good enough for all of us to be good little Christians living our good little Christian lives at home. That's important. We need to do that, Father. We need your help with that. And we're not going to do it perfectly. We know that. We, we praise you for your forgiveness in our lives, and we don't. But, Father, we also want to commit to being a force for good in our community, for fighting the powers as they're at work in Louisville, for fighting the powers as they're at work around the world, as you see fit to use the things that come from Compass, Father. And that's what we ask for. We ask for open doors to help people, open doors to help um, bring people to you, Father. So we thank you for that opportunity and for your grace and mercy and guidance along the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.